0: To hell with Blockbuster, they sucked. <laughs> uh, you know, that was one. There have been a lot of corporate deaths in this in our lifetime. I'll wait No tears for
1: Blockbuster. No, it was
0: just, it was. Oh, they just milked you with those late fees.
1: And the late fees. Oh, and no, it was, was just angry. And you had to know the guy if you wanted the, the movie the day it came out because uh, there were only a certain number of copies. Oh, you could never
0: get the movie you wanted. And then you're just watching something with Harvey Keitel from 1983 or even. Yeah, like a, yeah, exactly. Like a, a cop in, in Las Vegas. And you're like, oh, what am I doing? Rich, what do you do when you go home at night? I read poetry. I oh, know you don't. I'm lying. You have like a 180-inch television.
1: It's a big TV. I don't, I don't know why you're exaggerating.
0: Literally, me. the minute you bought it, you're like, I need to get a bigger TV. This is garbage. I'm
1: ready to throw in you, the garbage.
0: You're a big TV person.
1: You don't watch. I'm not saying that you
0: watch a ton of TV. You're just a big TV person.
1: <laughs> it's a large room. I want to have a big TV in it.
0: What's on your TV? Is it cable news? No. I I watch
1: Netflix, Paul. I know where you're taking me here.
0: (laughs) What a surprise that I would take us there. I mean, look, we all do. It's part of our life. And uh, we have an early leader from Netflix on Skype to tell us how Netflix became Netflix.
1: Are we talking CEO or what? I think we're talking CEO. (laughs) Okay.
0: We're what? Yeah. We're going to find out. And Um, co-founder. Yeah, and co-founder. So let's rope him into this conversation. He's been quietly waiting. Uh, (laughs) Patiently waiting. Mark Randolph, welcome to Track Changes. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. So tell us, what was your role? When were you there? Netflix, a little company, literally everyone has heard about at this point.
2: Well, I was really there from the very, very beginning, even before it was Netflix, in fact. I mean, it all started, you know, in a car, brainstorming ideas. So I was there when Netflix might have been personalized shampoo or uh, custom milled baseball bats.
0: So you're in this car. You're driving along. We
2: got to do something together. Who was in the car? So this was my, this was uh, myself and my business partner at the time, Reed Hastings. Sure. Uh, both of us working together in a big geeky software company, which was being acquired, and we were being, as they euphemistically put it, made redundant. Uh, Are being fired, in other words. And uh, both of us go, "All right, what next?" And I wanted to start another company. Uh, Reed was going to go off and get a higher degree in education, but wanted to keep his finger in. So we go, "Okay, let's come up with an idea together." Reed will be the angel investor, and I'll take off and start and run this new company. But of course, that begs the question, "What?" And that led to those months of carpooling. from Santa Cruz, California, up over the Santa Cruz mountains into Sunnyvale and trying to figure out what is this next new venture going to be. Now, what had you been doing before that? What were you guys up to? So my background is I'm a direct marketing geek, a junk mail king. So my experience <laughs> was all in how to mail things efficiently. Uh, the catalog companies that I had started, I was all about How do you do customer service well? How do you ship things to people? I had done magazine circulation, so I knew subscriptions. I was very metrics focused. And you can kind of see all these things are kind of bubbling in my mind when I'm watching the Internet come along Mm -hmm. and kind of realizing, wow, this e-commerce thing is really perfect for what my background and skills are. Reed uh, was coming from a position of he had just founded a company called Pure Software. So he was the technologist. His background was a mathematician. So he shared this love of metrics with me. And so we kind of combine, as any good startup does, you take the skills and experiences and backgrounds of your two founders and combine them and mix them in a pot and see what you come up with.
0: So as you, were you driving by Blockbusters on your way to Sunnyvale? Back
2: <laughs> in 1997, I think it was probably impossible to throw a stone and not hit a Blockbuster. This is true. Our younger our younger
0: listeners won't remember as much but think Starbucks but filled with videos and that's that's what the world looked like well, in 1997.
1: Clarified, DVD, hardware, like actual physical DVDs yeah. and videotapes that's at one right. point.
0: Just a whole
2: shelf dedicated to the movie Titanic.
1: Yeah, that's well, right. It
2: was a distinctly unpleasant experience. I mean, very few people would go into a Blockbuster and sit down and have a cup of coffee. I mean, that, it, it was serving a need, but Blockbuster was a hated experience by people.
0: Oh, they love those late feats. Remember that? That was just, just, oh, they like to punish you. <laughs>
2: (laughs) Yeah. In fact, it was one of the methodologies that Reed and I were using to brainstorm ideas was starting off from the point of what do we hate? Not just about video rental. We were sharing all these bad experiences and saying, which of these is the ripest? Which can we fix? And video rental was actually a pretty tempting target because it was a big category. I mean, back then Blockbuster had 9,000 stores or something like that. And it was an $8 billion category. But if you think about it, it's kind of a stupid idea too. You know, And when we told people we wanted to try doing video rental by mail, everyone had that same response, which is that'll never work. Because why would I rent from you and have you mail me a movie when I can just go down the street and snag one from a blockbuster? And in fact, as I researched it, it did turn out to be a bad idea. In fact, back then, video rental was on VHS. And we realized pretty quickly, you just can't ship VHS tapes back and forth to people. And so that idea got thrown onto the scrap heap. But anyway, so then a couple of months go by, and all of a sudden, this new technology comes out called a DVD. And we go, wow, this DVD actually might change things um, because it's small and it's light and you can fit into an envelope. Maybe we can actually use the U.S. Post Office for this. So we did this classic experiment where we um, all of a sudden turned the car around mid-commute, drove down to downtown Santa Cruz and bought, went to a used record store and bought a used music CD, a okay. Patsy Klein CD, to be honest. Uh, went two doors down, bought a little gift envelope, the type you put a greeting card in, put the CD in the envelope, went to the Santa Cruz Post Office and mailed this CD to Reed's house. And then the very next morning when Reed picked me up to go to work, he goes, it made it. And it made it in one day unbroken for the cost of a first class stamp. And that simple experiment was the moment we said, wow, this might change things because all of a sudden now we can do video rental for the price of a stamp. And that's what started really the idea that maybe we could actually build a business out of video rental by mail. That one stamp.
1: One is, is to blame for endless episodes of cartoons that make me fight with my children.
0: <laughs> from little things, from little things. From
1: little things come bigger things.
0: All I'm thinking is that this thing where you're commoditizing your outrage at bad quality products. I'm looking at my, co- <laughs> we, ha- we could be doing that. We are completely filled with outrage most of the time. And what do we do? complain. We we do podcasts. We we, (laughs) We do
1: podcasts. (laughs) All right. So So, Mark, jump ahead. I mean, okay, that's, that's a revelation. And then you guys had another revelation. Now, are you there for the transition as the idea of streaming content on the internet starts to take hold? Like that's, that's another transformational moment.
2: Absolutely. And in fact, it's a transformational moment that took 10 years to transform. So of course, from day one, we knew that people would be eventually downloading movies or streaming movies. I mean, it was once it was on a DVD, it was digital. Okay, so draw
1: draw the timeline for me. When you mailed that CD, that's ninety seven. Yeah. Okay, so now, so now you're thinking in ninety seven. Now the internet, I mean, just to draw it out, I mean, it's a baby. There's like four books on Amazon. There's, there's it's tiny. It's two three years old. And
2: from a commercial perspective, right. and so you're thinking, okay, it's coming. Even at that point. Well, let's, let's talk about, again, what's happening in 1997. and 1998, when we actually launched, Amazon was around. Amazon only sold books, if you can believe it. They were a bookstore. And even though a lot of people, everyone said it's just imminent before everyone is streaming movies and everyone is downloading movies, Reed and I knew that, yes, eventually that was absolutely going to be true. But the big disagreement was when is eventually? Um, some people thought, of course, it's going to be six months. But I think I was pretty cynical. I mean, for one, all the content was owned by Hollywood. And after having seen how the music industry had been decimated by music downloading, they were completely panicked and paranoid about releasing any of their movies digitally. And the other one, of course, is that back then, if you wanted to even try and watch something rudimentary video like in your house you were watching it on your computer. You were not watching it on uh, Rich's you know, 220-inch television. So there was all kind, and of course, even the bandwidth wasn't there. I mean, maybe you were starting to see high-speed or relatively high-speed stuff into businesses, but no one had high-speed internet to the home. So we thought this is gonna take a long time. So the challenge for us was, how do you build a business which is relevant in a day when people are getting their bits on DVDs But still have the company be relevant when the world changes and you can get them by download. But that took, you know, 10 years. But if I look back to what one of the decisions that we made early, early, early was we cannot position this company around DVDs. This cannot be the world's fastest shipper of plastic and have that be our uh, our calling card. We had to position it. But at the same time, if we had said we are the the movie downloading guys, we would have gone bankrupt in probably two or three hours because there was no content. No one could actually download anything. So you had to build something which was delivery agnostic. And for us, the positioning became we're going to become a place that always has entertainment that you like. And that works either way. It's a great positioning if you're shipping people plastic DVDs. It's great once they can download it or stream it. It'll be great once they can beam it, I don't know, telepathically into your fillings or something. But it was a way of being positioned so we could straddle that changing landscape.
1: Okay jump me to the time you're like okay you know what i we've you see, i one of the things that well, i'm hear
0: about the like the hyper growth. I always like a good hyper growth. well
1: story. no i i think i want to ask this could either be dumb luck or brilliant right which is when they were ready to move over so that actual content could be streamed a lot of the infrastructure in terms of the users and the data and sort of all the scaffolding was in place right and i always thought it was unusual how much they remember they had that contest where I think they gave out a million bucks for the best algorithm to predict what people want to watch next and all yeah, this stuff. And yeah, I remember all this. And, you know, and, but in hindsight, I'm thinking, wow, they knew all along that this was coming. Like they needed the scaffolding. They needed the sort of the course infrastructure in place. Why, so are that, you, why are you asking me? Well, I want to know. It, were, were you guys lucky? I mean, or was this? were you starting to think about this?
2: Well, it was a combination of two. Of course we're lucky. I mean, part of building a company is preparation and opportunity, but a huge amount of it is luck. For example, the fact that Reed and I went back and forth brainstorming video rental by mail and VHS didn't work, and then lo and behold, 45 days later, they released the DVD. If that hadn't happened, that idea would have been gone, and I'd be talking about custom dog food, but no one would care about that. Another thing is we also bet on DVD back when DVD was in test market, DVD had gone the way that the laser disc went, that would have been the end of that. If Blockbuster had responded differently, when all of a sudden they realized we were a threat. So absolutely, luck is in place. But the question about, were we smart about the positioning? No. That was just a good, smart business decision, realizing you could not be all about DVD, because you knew the world was going to change. Let me ask you this, Mark.
1: And if you can answer this, I mean, it will change many people's lives. The history of business is littered with examples of businesses whose culture hardens and calcifies and is very oriented around a particular way of doing things. And then a massive pivot is necessary... And they just can't do it. It's too hard to pull it out by its roots and pivot. And what happens is you get eaten alive, right? And that happened to Blockbuster. In fact, I remember Blockbuster Online came out like four years too late and it was buggy and they just couldn't become that, right? So now you're presented with this situation where you're seeing streaming is coming. You're, you probably had it nailed down with, like, logistics around mail order and the f- and the warehouses and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, you got to become something you're not, right? Walk me through how— Wait, wait We need to make—if
0: you're going to ask this question, you have to say the word. The word is Quickster.
1: I don't know what that is. Oh,
0: that, that's—we've oh, all no. forgotten
2: Quickster. Mark hasn't forgotten Quickster. Well, there's a couple of things that you need to be aware of here. The first thing is that I don't work at Netflix anymore— and in fact, I haven't worked there for quite a while. I was the early, I was the first CEO. I was kind of the co-founder here, but I tr- moved out of Netflix probably in two thousand and four, which was were. before Quickster. I can talk about Quickster for, uh, briefly. Just and for people who don't know, Netflix, uh, you know, despite our early struggles, and and I talk a, a lot about these early struggles in uh, that will never work, which is the book about the starting and growing of Netflix. But um, eventually you get some scale here and you're doing DVDs. You're doing wonderfully. And then along comes this other business you need to be in, which is streaming. And now you're running two businesses simultaneously and they don't neatly coexist. It's confusing. The pricing is different. Some titles are available to stream. Some are available on DVD. Some countries offer streaming. Some only offer DVD. And you come down to this point where you go, We really need to focus. We need to recognize that trying to do two things well is really hard. And this was exactly the situation that was facing Reed and the rest of the company in those days leading up to their decision to split the company. And they were going to spin off one, this DVD business as a company called Quickster and maintain the other company. Doing streaming called Netflix. It's a, it's a product decision. It's a sort of, we, we can't a
1: branding decision, yeah. branding strategy and such.
2: It's more than a, it's not a branding decision. It's an operational decision. It's saying that if we're going to succeed in streaming, we have to do everything which is optimized for streaming. And if we have all these decisions to make, we can do this. We've got to remain some kind of reverse compatibility Anything you do which which is slowing yourself down and achieving your main goal is going to hurt you. And what you alluded earlier to all these companies having this problem, it's because they're always trying to hold on to the past at the expense of the future. And your future customers don't give a crap about your past business. They don't care if you have multi-level distribution. They don't care if you have a super high-priced salesperson who will be pissed if you go direct. They just go, wow, there is someone who is doing this more efficiently and they're going to leave and go to that person. And I'm so familiar with this because at the beginning, early on, I mean, probably in the first year, Netflix was starting to take off. This was 1998, 99, and we were crushing it. But the problem is we were crushing it because we were selling DVDs, not renting them. In fact, 99% of our revenue was coming from selling DVDs. And don't forget, this is a company that we had founded on the principle that we were going to be a rental company. Not only was it really bad that all the revenue was coming from sales, we knew that Amazon was about to enter sales. And that was going to sink us. And we faced the exact same problem the company faced many years later with Quickster in that doing both at the same time was brutal, some you could rent, some you could sell. The homepage was complicated, operation, shipping. And we made the decision early on that if we're going to succeed, we got to pick one thing and do it really well. And the tempting thing, of course, would say, let's do sales. That's paying 99% of our salaries. But we also knew that if we picked sales, eventually it would be a commodity business. And eventually the margins would get driven to zero. And eventually we'd be out of business. <laughs> So we said it's probably better to risk everything and focus everything we have on making this stupid rental business work and then try and preserve against all odds the sales business and had the courage to walk away entirely from 99 percent of our revenue in a single day in order to really commit ourselves to making rental work.
0: Hey Rich. Yes, Paul. What's your favorite all time Netflix show? Mm, the Queen. The Queen is good. I like good. the Queen. It's yeah. not bad. I never That's got all the bad. way through
1: it, but definitely like the, yeah. the parts I watched. God, it's I'm hard. Like, it's all jumbled up. It's, in very, there. Well,
0: it's honestly it's literally like who's gonna be able to get the jewelry yeah. across the hall in a timely manner, <laughs> as opposed to like D Day. <laughs> you know, it's just but anyway, the Queen's
1: really good. Quick pitch, uh docuseries last chance you. Is very oh, good. good? Yeah, good. it's very good. Okay. What's the what's the thing you hate the most? On Netflix? Yeah. Oh. You know what it um, is for me? Dino trucks. We are a product studio, Paul. That's right. Uh this is about product and well, about no, product. I mean,
0: the thing that Netflix is on the digital side is a platform where you can search, explore, and have recommendations about videos that you might want to watch. And we can build that for you.
1: Yep. We are a product studio here in New York City. We have designers, engineers, product leads. Yeah. Crazy client list. Just go check us out at postlight.com. Very cool stuff. Hello
0: at postlight.com if you need us. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, how big is the organization at that point?
2: Well, back then, we probably had 10,000 customers. Okay. And how many employees?
0: Uh, 30.
2: OK, so
0: I mean, moving 30 to a new model is is better than moving 3000. Right?
2: No, but the thing is, you're running on fumes at that size mm-hmm. of a company. So it is true. It is easier to do, but it is just as scary and just as terrifying. But in, in fact, but the, the reason I tell that early story is that it is part of that Netflix DNA, which is this complete culture and courage that says you can you have to. Always do what's right for the future, no matter what the cost of the past. And we had the courage to do it back then when we had customers in the tens of thousands. And I wasn't there at the time, but Reed had the courage to do it with Quickster when they had millions of customers. And I have no doubt That if the similar situation comes up now, they'll allow the cars to do it again, even though they have 150 million customers. It's a cultural imprint that is part of what it means being a startup. Being a startup is not how many employees you have. It's not what your revenue level is. It's how you act. And you can have a 30-person company who acts like a stodgy old corporation. And you can have a 7,000-employee company like Netflix, which continues to think and act like a startup. Tell us about leaving. What was this
0: like? You're, you're the CEO. You've built this thing up. Then what happens?
2: Well, one of the things you learn if you're lucky as you get older is two things. And one of them is what you're good at. And one of them is what you like. And I was pretty fortunate that by the time I was in my mid 40s, I knew those things. And what I really enjoyed was early stage stuff. I love those early struggles, finding the the repeatable, scalable business model, recruiting people, that early fundraising, that rallying the team. And if I can blow my own horn for a second, I was actually pretty good at it. But as a company gets success, ironically, you're working your way out of a job because the skills which make you a phenomenal early stage executive are not the same skills once a company hits scale. And after Netflix had gone through its IPO and had really nailed down the business model and was transitioning into streaming, it was a different company. And even though I loved that company, I really wanted to fight those battles and right those wrongs, you begin to realize that I don't really love working there. These aren't the types of day-to-day things that I enjoy doing. And begin realizing that I have choices. And began a period of working myself slowly but methodically out of a job. Who did you tell first? My wife. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a good place to start. It is a good place to start. But the thing is, one of the cultural norms at Netflix, besides this courage piece, is brutal honesty. And it is the way Reed and I have treated ourselves from the very beginning. And you know, in culture, after all, is not what you say or what you carve into your cornerstone of your building. It's how you act. And it's how you treat each other and how you treat your employees. And Reed and I have always been brutally honest with each other. And so at every moment, Reed and I were able to say, me telling him, you know, this isn't as fun for me anymore. And him telling me, well, quite frankly, you're not as good at some of this stuff as some of the people that we can bring in are. And both of us kind of realized it was time to begin thinking about a way to manage an exit. And so I began moving myself more into the areas of the company that I really still had a passion for, which was product and customer. And in fact, one of my final projects at Netflix was the early stages of doing the streaming research, figuring out what are the right technologies we can use, figuring out what's the right content we can develop. And actually, interestingly enough, my very final project was working with a gentleman named Mitch Lowe on a kiosk for Netflix we had a, um, a little store we, had, we were at a Smith's supermarket in Las Vegas. and we were hacking it. We didn't actually build the kiosk, we faked it and had a model trying to figure out how customers would react to a kiosk. And I spent one summer in Las Vegas, Nevada, in a supermarket watching people emulate how they would use a Netflix rental kiosk. And that project was fantastically successful, but when we came back, We decided for focus reasons not to make it part of Netflix. So instead, I said, okay, I think this is a good time to leave. And then my partner, Mitch Lowe, he went on to found another little company with that idea called Redbox. Ah, Redbox, Redbox. They're still out there, aren't they? They sure are. All from those little kiosks, the fake kiosk and the Smith's Supermarket in Summerlin, Nevada.
1: This The common thing, you know, these stories have to start somewhere. They don't start grand. They start small. They're just ideas that that are getting tossed around and then they, they catch fire.
2: And there's so many more stories like this. You know, in That will never Work, which is my new book, it really is the untold story about Netflix. And it is all these little tricks and turns and disappointments and failures and successes that show how we went from like a Patsy Cline CD to a publicly traded company. Yeah, so tell us about this book, Mark. Well, it's partly a great story because there are so many interesting things here. I mean, it's about accidentally shipping porn to customers, and we were trying to be the first to market with a Bill Clinton testimony uh, DVD. It's about how, again, how it could have been bat- baseball bats and shampoo. It's about it's about all these all these times when people would tell you it would never work, and you persevere through it. It's about all the times you don't take no for an answer. But at a different level, it's something different. It's also trying to share with people. All these things that I've learned from 40 years as an entrepreneur that other people can use trying to turn their ideas into something real. At its really most basic level, that'll never work is really my attempt Mm -hmm. to show you how we took something that everyone said would never work and turned it into the company it is today. But how those exact same principles can be used for anybody, whether you're a business person or not, anyone who has an idea, how you can try and make that idea real. Is this book available? Well, your timing is perfect because as a matter of fact, That Will Never Work is available this week. Available on Amazon, Barnes Noble, and of course, at uh, your local uh, retailer.
0: All right. Well, everybody knows what to do now. Long live the local retailer. What are you up to now?
2: So after I left Netflix probably almost 15 years ago now, and I was in my mid-40s, and, I, and Netflix was actually my sixth startup. So I wasn't sure I had it in me to do another one. But, you know, once you're an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. And so I couldn't just walk away. So these days I get my my fix by mentoring um, other early stage entrepreneurs as a, a CEO coach. And it's the perfect thing for me because I get to get all the things I loved about Netflix. I get to sit around a table with super smart people solving really interesting problems. But I then get to go home at five o'clock, whereas they're the ones now staying up all night, uh, all night working on it. The most recent company that I was a mentor for, or I was a mentor to the founders from day one, was a company called Looker Data, mm-hmm. which we just sold to Google. So, so great. sometimes these things uh, work out phenomenally well, but that isn't even the point. It's that fun of the struggle.
0: All right. The fun of the struggle. We have the title. Well, no,
1: he's already got a title.
2: Believe me, you hear that will never work way more than you hear the fun of the
1: struggle. <laughs> true, true. Mark, thank you so much. This has been great to kind of open the box and see how it all came together.
2: Oh, really pleasure talking with you guys as well. It was a great time and I'm always happy to uh, to chat about it.
1: One of my favorite quotes in the world is by Winston Churchill. And uh, it goes like this. It goes, when you're going through hell, keep going. Okay. And I feel like that's, that because failure is going to be in the mix. It's it's just going to be there. So I think that's what was fun about this, is hearing about, you can't mail a f- VHS. For those that know, the, a VHS tape is the size of a shoebox, a small children's shoebox. The thing that's,
0: in Christian theology, you, you can't get out of hell. So he's basically just saying, it's hell. You're just going to continue is in it, hell
1: forever. I, honestly, professionally for me in my life, and maybe this is out of whack for like this podcast and the flow of it, but... Success is kind of just layers of hell. It's like Dante whatever it was. What's it Dante? He's got seven floors or something. Yeah, I definitely It's like thought, a seven-story apartment building. I mean, I definitely thought success
0: would feel differently than it did. It just gets harder, man. Like, uh, it just grinds harder. Well, and you get more and more isolated. Yeah. Yeah. But- anyway, people should really be out there <laughs> feeling for us. That's what this is about. <laughs> the two co-founders of Postlight, with the successful agency... Our pain is really what what matters.
1: This is Track Changes by PostLight. Yeah. Uh, We're a digital product studio here in New York City. Give us five stars on iTunes, and if you've got anything you want to talk about or need help with platforms and digital products, uh, reach out. Hello at postlight.com. Paul, have a wonderful week. You too. Let's get back to it.